Hello, this is Heather Tetrangelo. I am the creator of Systemic Renewal and I believe that no one and no situation is ever too far gone. Hello everyone, this is Heather Tetrangelo. Welcome back to Never Too Far Gone. You are about to participate in the third of a six-part series called Following Favour. Following favor is one of the principles that we talk about in the practice of systemic renewal. And it really is uh, an aspect of focusing in on how we discern who to work with. The who of systems change is a very critical, often neglected, often overlooked aspect of how we go about leading sustainable change effectively. And so I thought let's do a little focus on this whole issue of who. How do we get the right people on the bus, the wrong people off? But also, how do we even know what that is? How do we discern that? And how do we know where there is favour for us to work creatively and effectively? Who are the people that really want to work with us, that share the heart and vision that we have for change, and who have the characteristics, competencies, and the commitment level that's needed to go the distance? Well, Today, I want to speak to a particular aspect of this question of who, and that is how we do group work that doesn't suck. So how do we get the right people in a group, the right leader in a group, and the right process happening with a group in such a way that it can really be effective? One of the things that I've discovered from my experience and my practice over 20 years now, but also from my research into how mindsets change for whole communities and even whole systems, is that group work that has the right people in it and that works a particular way to strategically change the system is an essential component of the process. This is automatically off-putting, and I realise that. I'm sort of conscious of that as we get ready to launch the Academy of Systemic Renewal in April 2024, and we are preparing to do that right now. Uh, Very exciting. I'm conscious that one of our key modes of four that we use to lead change really relies on a focus group, which works together in a particular way, and I know that's off-putting at first glance because often our experience of group work isn't very exciting. Uh, And I personally have to say that despite the fact that I have discovered that this is a critical method and it's something that I've been developing for years of my life, I genuinely on the whole detest group work I really don't like it and I think that often our predominant experience of group work has been kind of negative. So what I want to focus in on today is how do we make group work really amazing? How do we make it an experience that leaves people begging for more? You know, when can we get together and do that thing again? When can we get together and work like that again? That was really fun. That was the highlight of my week. I have seen this happen. However, um, you know, I understand that we often carry 
large amounts of baggage around negative experiences of just group work that's happened in a very unsophisticated, lazy kind of way um, that's left us kind of wanting. So why does group work matter? Academically, I'll just quickly flag that what we know from research around the pedagogy of change is that situated learning models are very important. That is learning on the job, learning within the practice that we're trying to improve. And specifically, uh, the method that systemic renewal is could be classed as a participatory action research method. However, it is also so much more than this because it is a practice that engages a whole range of rhythms and strategies and processes uh, that we practice in our daily, weekly, monthly and lifelong work in leadership. So it's, it's participatory action research plus if that makes sense. Uh, It's something that goes deeper into our psyche and into our practice and reaches into a range of other modes and strategies that we use in our leadership other than group work. So it isn't group work alone. In fact, that's a quarter of what we do. But it is important because research shows that it's the way we make effective problem solutions happen within a system. And it's how we really get to the heart of what the key barriers are and how they got there, and why they're there, and therefore how we can strategize to heal, shift, and transition those. So why are we naturally suspicious of group work? Because we've often had experiences of having to do group work as part of study, or as part of professional development, or as part of training days. Uh, Group tasks or assignments are generally very painful. One of my absolute pet hates, something I will never use by choice in my own teaching, is group assessment tasks. I think being assessed as a group is one of the most unfair, frustrating, loathsome experiences ever. Um, What else? Forced group activities or team building days. Awful. I'm really not a fan, and some of you will see this in my literature, of trust building activities or group activities that are supposed to make us function well as a team. Uh, I never use games uh, or going around the circle and sharing something as a strategy. I just believe build genuine trust by giving people genuine freedom and autonomy. And then when trust has organically built, if people want to play games for fun, that's one thing, that's all good. But using those strategies to build trust, I'm not a fan of. Uh, what else? Group work uh, can be the laziest form of facilitation. For example, uh, we're going to give your table a question to work on. Please write your answers up on this poster or onto this butcher paper and then um, we'll get someone to feed back to the group what you came up with. Um, That and asking people to give group presentations, honestly, is one of the laziest forms of facilitation ever uh, because you, as a teacher or as a facilitator, basically don't have to do much. Uh, It's awful. Uh, And in these contexts, we, we really only start to skim the surface 
of issues because we're in a pressured environment, we're working under pressured time, and we know we have to present. So that's going to immediately limit how deep we go into the real issues that need to be talked about, unpacked and addressed because there isn't necessarily even safety or will to do that. So these are all examples of why I hate group work, uh, but I've also discovered the power of group work and the necessity of having diverse representation in a group of people that can co-create solutions because it is the only way that works. So let's take a bit of a change of track here and I'm going to encourage you to think of a time when you have experienced group work in a really, really good way. Maybe your natural inclination isn't to be as negative as me. I have experienced group work in positive ways as well. But just for you right now, why don't you take a breath, take a pause and think of a time when you really enjoyed group work when you really found it productive or you really looked forward to it and try to sit in the memory of that and to relive the moment and think about whether it was in a formal setting or an informal setting, uh, whether it just happened organically around a table or whether it was part of a, a structured program. What was it that made it good? What were the factors at play that made it productive, enjoyable, engaging, real? I'm willing to bet that when you think on these experiences, there will be a degree of confidentiality and safety to speak freely. There would be some structure to the process or the experience. There would be some kind of facilitation or leadership of the group and it would be with a group that genuinely has a shared interest in what they're discussing. So these are the three points that I really want to draw out today from my own research and also from three thinkers that I'm actually going to bring in today, Janella Meadows, Jim Collins, who wrote Good to Great, and Ed Catmull. So the first point is that group work that doesn't suck always has a leader. The second is group work that doesn't suck is selective about who is in the group. And thirdly, it is led, but it is led by doers. So to the first point, uh, group work that doesn't suck has a leader. Leaderless groups are incredibly frustrating experiences to be in. Um, leaderless groups unless they are just a small discussion group of two or three or four people simply sharing a conversation. Leaderless groups eventually have default leaders who are probably the wrong leaders and they will have particular personalities dominate and start to drive the agenda and the culture of the group. It is just not a good idea to structure things in such a way that we don't have trained, supervised, qualified, appropriately appointed leaders. So in the Academy of Systemic Renewal, and I think this is important to share up front, we are not against hierarchy. I guess one of the things that we always wonder when we look at new communities popping up that work in the space of collective innovation or systems change or 
uh, transformative governance kind of conversations, we want to know what's the philosophy that this group is working from and where did it come from? Well, the philosophy has come from my own experience and my research into systems change, drawing from, in fact, the background in Franciscan reform in the Middle Ages, looking at that history and then working with a group to develop the pedagogy that we observe in that system in terms of how it can be applied today. And then from there, I have engaged the breadth of systemic thinking and systems thinking in understanding the pedagogies that we know from research and from history genuinely lead sustainable change across systems. So what I have learned from that background and that study is that hierarchy is not the enemy, even though like group work, it might be that our personal experience of it is mostly negative because we genuinely experience hierarchy most of the time to be elitist, to be classist, to be racist, to be sexist, to be homophobic, to be unsafe. And uh, unfortunately, uh, because that is our dominant experience, uh, we have negative associations with hierarchy as a system, as a structure. However, um, in the Academy of Systemic Renewal, we are not against hierarchy, but we are for a hierarchy that subverts itself and subverts itself in such a way that leaders within a hierarchy become, in fact, servants, become the most humble, the most vulnerable the most open to having their mind changed and the most able to say, I'm sorry, I got it wrong. Leaders are the most participatory members of the organisation. And this is one of the things that I have drawn from Franciscan history and the example of Francis. But pause on Francis and pause on that history. Let's think about Donella Meadows. Donella Meadows was one of the greatest leaders and systems change thinkers of history. She is arguably uh, one of the most foundational thinkers in terms of the development of systems change theory and particularly within the sphere of the science of environmental sustainability. And also we could say she was one of the first people that pioneered a sense of urgency around climate change. She really was one of the first scientists that sounded the alarm on the fact that we as a global society are transgressing planetary boundaries and the consequences are going to be devastating for the human race and for the environment itself. Tonella Meadows believed that hierarchy is essential and necessary and good for systems. She wrote this in her book, Thinking in Systems, and she wrote that even ecological systems and living organisms are hierarchical in the sense that the larger system coordinates and enhances the functioning of the subsystems. So this is not to say hierarchies do not become problematic. And she also acknowledges this. She said hierarchies become problematic when they malfunction by either failing to care for or enhance the well-being of the subsystem or by beginning to control the subsystems to a degree that they no longer have enough autonomy to keep all subsystems flourishing, functioning, and self-organizing. So borrowing from this idea, in summary, we basically need leaders within the hierarchies that we sit within who give structure 
and protection and boundaries and guidance and oversight to the system, as well as expertise, but who do this in such a way that protects and enhances the well-being of the group, certainly doesn't abuse any individuals or groups, and secondly, uh, that gives freedom and decision-making power to the group and in this sense subverts the hierarchy, in a sense turning it on its head. So I want to do something a little bit different with this podcast and not leave our pause for reflection right until the end. I'm going to pause on each of these three thoughts and start here with a moment for you to stop and reflect about your own experience and ask yourself, when have you experienced this kind of subversive, beautiful, egalitarian leadership? What it's like when we experience this is that the leader is so skilled that they in fact manage to make it look and feel like there isn't a leader, even though there is. They are so skilled at enhancing the well-being of the group and so skilled at giving decision-making power and freedom to create to the group that it almost appears as though nobody's leading. So when have you experienced this? So moving on to the second point, which is that teams that don't suck are selective. And we did talk about this a little bit in the last podcast, didn't we, about the importance of selectivity. A group that works really well together is not a group that everyone gets into. Um, Of course, it's appropriate to have groups in our organizations, in our life, that are open house and gatherings and forums that anyone can come to. But a working group that's trying to effect a particular change in a system isn't an all-in space. This means that you actually can't force group work on people. I don't believe that you could force group work, particularly not the kind we do in systemic renewal, on your management team at work. Ultimately, if people are forced to do group work as part of their role, its effectiveness will be very limited because the effectiveness of a team will depend on the extent to which there is passion, desire, willingness and voluntary input into that process. Selectivity, as we looked at last week, is one of the key elements that came out of Jim Collins' research, which showed that one of the things that really attracts the right people onto the bus or to work in a company or an organisation or on a project is a high degree of selectivity. And we looked at how selectivity comes down to three C's, character, competence and commitment, thought about the character requirements, the kind of competencies and abilities that we look for in people that are going to work on this team and also a commitment level that's already been demonstrated that this person has the grit to work hard and stay at it even after setbacks. So 
So one of the things that Jim Collins' research team discovered about how to discern whether someone has the right degree of commitment to the work is, surprisingly, that how much they get paid isn't a driver for why they're in the role. So there's a little caveat on this. People do need to be paid fairly and they do need to be paid what they're worth. So if people are being employed in a paid role and they're not being paid appropriately in a way that reflects their worth and their experience, they probably won't stay and or they probably won't even apply for the job. However, what Jim Collins' team found in 2001 is that basically you can't buy the right people. He wrote, we found no systemic pattern linking executive compensation to the process of going from good to great. In other words, the really great leaders at the top of the hierarchy uh, in in the companies that managed to achieve great results were not people that would be swayed by a bonus or a pay rise being offered to them in another role. It wasn't ultimately what motivated them to be there or to get out of bed in the morning. What he found is that the great leaders are the people who are there because of their passion for the work, such that they will do it with or without the bonus. They are not people who will shift roles or change companies purely for a rise in pay or purely for a promotion. So the lesson is choose people for your working group who really, really want to work in this project, in this work, because it is their passion. It is the thing that gets them out of bed in the morning and they are going to want to be there on the good days, on the bad days, and they will do it for $30,000, $50,000 less than they might get if they were elsewhere. So let's pause and have a think about this. When have you experienced working with people who care more about the cause than how much they are being paid. And how does it feel when you're in an environment like that? Conversely, when have you been in a room that is the opposite of this, where you do feel that sense that a primary motivator for people in the room is pay, is notoriety, and how does this feel by contrast? Okay, finally, we move now to the third point, which is that teams that don't suck have leaders who are also participants. This is one of my favorite parts of this conversation. And this is one of the things that came out of my research that was the most surprising and interesting to me, uh, especially looking over the interviews that I did in the last two years. So in the Academy of Systemic Renewal, we're not against hierarchy, but we do believe in subverting it in dramatic ways with democratic egalitarian processes. So this is the counterbalance. We want leaders to be people who themselves are subject to the group, 
who can put themselves at the feet of the people they lead. This means two practical things in particular. So let me get really specific about this. The first element is that the right leader is someone who can work confidentially. That is, they can work in a way that they may never get any recognition, credit or praise for, and the work that they're doing might not ever even be seen. And the reason this is important is that we can only really get to the heart of what's underlying a system in terms of its paradigm and its mindset and the reason that we're experiencing barriers or resistance to change if we can work with people in unseen confidential ways where there's freedom to really speak openly and freedom to explore terrains that haven't really been discussed yet. So Ed Catmull really taught us this wonderful genius of a man, amazing mind, but also an incredible leader of our times. Ed Catmull is the co-founder of Pixar and the president of Walt Disney Animation Studios. What would our lives be without all of the amazing animated films that have brought us together with friends and family that have touched us as children growing up and For those of us that have children, that we watch that being a part of their story and experience now, Um, such incredible and important work. And Ed Catmull wrote a beautiful book called Creativity, Inc. And in this book, he kind of coined the phrase and developed the concept of the brain's trust. Of course, a lot of organizations and companies are now using a brain's trust process uh, in their context. And the idea of it is to create space where people can speak freely about problems they're experiencing or blocks that they're hitting in their work and kind of try to invest in each other succeeding by workshopping the question and sharing ideas and advice and For this to happen in a way that's never reported on, never presented back to the organization or to a team, never reported up to management, it's the opportunity to work on an issue in a completely unseen and confidential way. And so the first thing is we need leaders who are prepared to do that. And secondly, the right leaders will put decision-making power in the hands of the group to choose what they will work on what they won't work on, and what their next steps or their action points are going to be as they go through action learning rhythms. So really critical is that ability to lead in such a way that the group leads itself. It's really a kind of facilitation. So I want to pause here and invite you to think again on your own experience because you already know, right, what it feels like to be in the right kind of group, being led in the right kind of way. So when have you had a genuinely honest conversation with people in your sector or your workplace in a way that wasn't just whinging or complaining or kind of just debriefing and getting frustrations off our chest, but really being able to talk honestly about the struggles that you personally are facing, that they personally are facing in trying to achieve the vision on their heart. And when that's happened, what were the factors that led to this kind of sharing being safe to take place?
Well, thanks for joining me today, everyone. I'm just going to recap now. What we've looked at today is group work that doesn't suck and three characteristics of groups that don't suck. First, they do have a leader. Second, they are selective. And third, they do have a leader, but the kind of leader who is led by others and who is themselves a doer. They do everything and anything that the group decides to do. So they are both leading and participating. I'll just recap on some questions that you might like to take with you as we close today into your week and into your journaling and reflection time. So first of all, when have you experienced the kind of leadership that makes it look and feel like there is no leader at all? Secondly, when have you experienced working with people who definitely genuinely care more about the cause than how much they are being paid? And thirdly, when have you had genuinely honest conversations with peers or co-workers about the struggles you face personally or in attempting to change the system? In 2024, we are going to launch the Academy of Systemic Renewal. We are already uh, gearing up to provide coaching services to people who want to practice systemic renewal in their work. We will also be training and licensing qualified people who pass the character, competence and commitment requirements that we're looking for to become coaches in this practice. These people will be supervised. They will be part of a supportive learning community they will have licensing requirements attached to their work. So yes, we need leaders, but we need leaders that are trained, equipped, supported and carefully selected to be able to lead in radically subvertive ways to create those kind of spaces where there is genuine equality, where every voice is heard, where diversity is welcomed, where inclusion is the norm and where service is the name of the game. The Academy of Systemic Renewal is based in Melbourne, and so we acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and we pay respects to elders past, present and emerging.